experience this morning being transformed by Jesus Christ. Well, I'm Pastor Ben, and this morning it is my privilege one last time to share God's eternal truth with you. And because it is my last time, at least in this capacity here at New Life, I can do whatever I want. I can say whatever I want. And so this morning, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag on something for you this morning. I'm going to give you a little behind-the-scenes look at what pastors talk about when you aren't there. So hopefully you lean in. Hopefully you're sitting on the edge of your seat, because this is a big risk this morning, right? If other pastors know I'm telling you this, letting all the secrets out, I could be in big trouble. They could take my pastor card away which, by the way, is actually a real thing. I'll show it to you later on my wallet. It's very strange, but I actually have a pastor card. But I don't want anyone to know, so we got a deal. We're going to keep it quiet. Everyone online, I know you're going to keep it quiet, right? We're not going to share this so people see. But here's a conversation that pastors have when you aren't around and they're just together. Maybe they're at a conference or they're having coffee or something. And they ask each other this very strange question. They say, which do you prefer, doing a wedding or a funeral? Right? Do you prefer presiding over a wedding or a funeral? Now, it seems so obvious, right? Because after all, what, it, what is a wedding? It's a day of joy and celebration, of new beginnings. And a funeral is the exact opposite. Right? It's a day of sorrow and sadness and the story of someone's life coming to an end. So it seems very, very obvious that at least the majority, a high percentage of pastors would have to say wedding, right? But here's the interesting thing. A majority of the pastors that I have spoken to when we are asked this question, they would say, I actually prefer doing funerals better than weddings. Now, right now, I know what you're thinking. Pastor Ben, where do you land on this spectrum? Are you ready? I would actually rather do a funeral than a wedding. And right now, you're thinking, maybe it's a good thing this lunatic is leaving, because that's very, very weird. But let me explain myself and kind of come to the defense of all those other pastors as well that have that preference. I'll just sum it up in one word. Brides. <laughs> now, I'm actually just kidding. I, I've never had or experienced what some might call a bridezilla, which is a bride who gets so worked up about their wedding, they make life miserable for everyone, including the pastor. I've actually never experienced that. In fact, as I look around, I see some faces I've done some weddings for, so I'm not talking about you. <laughs> Every wedding I've done actually has been great, and the brides have been great. In fact, I've never even experienced what some would call a momzilla, which is the mother of the bride who's also making everyone's life kind of miserable because she wants it to be perfect for her daughter, right? I've never experienced either of those things. So why would I pick a funeral over a wedding? Well, it's summed up in this holy moment called the deathbed. Now, I don't know if you've experienced this before, but if you haven't, you will probably at some point in time, likely. It's that moment where your loved one, your friend, right, they're, they're passing away, and they know they're passing away. They're in the hospice home, or they're in your house, and hospice care has been brought in, and they know the end is coming to a close really quickly. And so their friends are there, their loved ones are there, those who are really close to them. Oftentimes, if they're connected to a church family, the pastor is there. I've been with many of you during moments like this. And in this holy moment called the deathbed, there's two things that happen. The first thing that happens is people share stories. 
right? They're sitting around that person. Oftentimes, that person isn't quite responsive at that point in time. They can hear, but we're not really sure if they can hear. And we share stories of how that person is intersected with our own personal lives, right? We went fishing with grandpa, or we went on vacation with dad, and we have all these ways that they've impacted us, funny stories, sometimes sad stories, but we share stories. The second thing that happens are the last words. Now, there's this very interesting moment. I don't know if you've experienced this before, but there's this moment where even when the person isn't really responsive, I call it a moment of grace, where it seems like God just infuses them one last time with energy and clarity. And all of a sudden, they haven't really been responding, but they kind of perk up. They maybe share a story. And then they share their last words. And these words are so powerful. Because the reality is, when we come to the close of anything, we're just hypersensitive about all the details. Right? When we get to the last moment of high school, we think about all the details, and we kind of just cherish them. We bring, come to the last moment of a job we're about to retire, like every conversation becomes a little bit more important. It's especially true when a life comes to a close. Right? Those words we hold on to, we cherish, they get etched into our minds. And so over the last week and into this week, two weeks, we've been covering this sermon series called The Last Words, which are Christ's last words to his disciples. Words that he wanted etched into their minds their whole life. Words that he wants etched into our minds for our whole journey in this life. And these are obviously correlated with my last words here in this capacity as your lead pastor. And so let's explore these words again this morning in the book of Matthew. This is what we read. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now if you were here last week, these are going to feel like some familiar rhythms. Right now, and it makes sense because if we think about the Gospels, the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are our four books, and they record the history of Jesus Christ, but they're written by different people. And so as different people record the history of Christ, there's some things that they have in common. Some things one writer elevates over the other, but in this one, we see a commonality between the book we looked at last week, which is the book of Luke. And it's this word, doubt. Now, if you were here last week, this is what you remember. The disciples were gathered in this room together. There was 11 remaining, 11 disciples, and they're talking. They're sharing their stories. They're thinking about their first interactions with Jesus where he invited them to be a disciple of his. They said yes. They went on this whirlwind three years of ministry with him teaching and doing miracles that no one could explain. And then he was falsely accused, which they were certain what he would just brush off and move on from because everyone knew it wasn't true. But yet he was convicted, put onto a cross, and he died. And for these disciples, this was the end of the story, the end of Christ's ministry, the end of their ministry, the end of their trust and their hope and their faith, because we all know when someone dies, they are dead, and they're not coming back. But in this moment, three days later, they start hearing these murmurings, they start hearing rumors and stories that Jesus was back. In fact, some of them even had their own moments and interactions with Jesus Christ, but they had a lot of doubts. And after all, who could blame them? Because we all know. When you die, you die. There's no coming back. And it's into this doubt that Jesus shows up, and I, I love this about Jesus. 
Jesus shows up into this upper room with these 11, and what he doesn't do is say, I need you to believe blindly through this moment. I need need you to trust me through all the doubts. It's going to require a lot of faith, and I'm not going to give you any proof, but you just need to believe. Instead, what he does, he says, get real close and touch me. See that I am real. Feed me and see that I'm real. And then he opens up the scripture and says, look at all this prophecy, 300 plus prophecies, 500 to 1,000 years old, so precise and so specific. And look at how I fulfill every single one of these prophecies. But despite that, we see here in Matthew that once again, what happens? They have this lingering doubt. Now, how is this possible? How, after experiencing all these things with Jesus, could they have doubt? Well, the answer is because just like you and just like me, we have been taught that if something is too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. Right? Our parents taught that. Grandpa taught you that. A teacher taught you that, maybe. And we just have this internalized that if it's too good to be true, then it must not be true. And when you think about the story of Jesus or even the larger story of God and his interaction with humanity, it seems too good to be true. It starts off with God creating a world perfectly designed for each and every one of us, and then designing it for you to exist in this area in 2022 with the people that you are around. Why would a God care? Right? It seems too good to be true. And then we're told that that God actually wants to walk with us through the difficulties of life. That seems too good to be true. And then we're told that when it comes to the sin problem, our corruption problem, that that God sent his very own son to walk the face of the earth and to die on the cross for my sins and your sins. That seems too too good to be true. And then we're told that that very son wants to place his perfection on us so we can go to the place of perfection and not drag our imperfection in and ruin that place, that seems too good to be true. So you can see why these disciples, and maybe many of you have had very real moments of doubt. But the beautiful story about Jesus Christ is even though it sounds too good to be true, it's actually true. This is what happens next. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So Jesus shows up once again right in front of them. They can touch him. They can see him. They know he's real. He says, look, this is how I'm able to do this. I am the boss. I am the king. All authority has been given to me. Why are you doubting Don't you remember just seconds ago, you were touching me, you saw me eat, you saw the prophecy. And even before then, what was happening when we were living life together? Right, you heard all the teachings, but you saw all the miracles that were unexplainable and no one could reproduce them. Right, you saw me turn water into wine. You saw me heal a person who couldn't walk. You saw me give sight to the blind. You saw me take a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread, which you guys actually provided, and then I I gave it to thousands of people. How could you have any doubt? I gave you all of these God moments that were only explained because God intervened in life, but yet you have doubts. 
Now, before we judge these disciples too harshly, I think we should just acknowledge that I believe that God has probably given every single one of you a God moment somewhere along your journey that maybe now you have a lot of doubts about. Maybe you're thinking of one right now. Maybe it was that, that vision to start that business or go in that direction or move to that area. And you, you thought, God is telling me to do this. And then you did it and it worked out. But the longer time has gone, you think, well, maybe it wasn't God. Maybe it's just me. Right? I made a good decision. The stars aligned. I worked really hard. And, and this is the outcome. And doubt creeps in. Or maybe you prayed that prayer, that impossible prayer. So big, so specific, so precise. There's no other way to explain it besides God intervened and answered your prayer. But the longer time goes, you begin to doubt. Even though he answered exactly like you asked it, you just have natural doubts. Like maybe it was just a fluke and doubt creeps in. Or maybe you went to that camp or that conference or you came on a Sunday morning and you just felt like the Holy Spirit just was wrapping his arms around you. And you just felt that presence, undeniable in your mind, right? It was just this, this moment where God just showed up in a powerful way, unexplainable. But as time goes on, the further you move from it, doubts creep in. You think, well, maybe I was just tired. Maybe I had too much caffeine or maybe some combination of the two. And that, that explains why I felt that way. Maybe it wasn't God and, and doubt creeps in. You see, I believe God has given each and every one of us one of these God moments, customized just for you to prove to himself in the darkest of times that he is who he said he was. But as time goes on, doubt creeps in. Recently, Ash and I had one of these, these God moments. Now, as you, you know, if you're here this morning, I'm sure you know that uh, we're following what we believe is God's path up to Minnesota to, to join a different ministry and to serve up in the much colder north. But it, doesn't, it didn't come without doubts. Even though we felt very clear that this is what God wants to do, there was a lot of doubts and apprehensions surrounding the whole process and the whole decision and everything. And one of the biggest pieces of apprehension was, where will we live? As you know, the housing market is incredibly challenging right now. It doesn't help that we have three kids and three dogs, and we don't have $500,000 sitting around just to play with, right? So we're hoping we could get a home. And to make matters worse, my wife comes in one day and says, look, you can serve at this huge church in the big city, but I want to live in a small town. I said, okay, where would you like to live? She found a little town called Zimmerman, Minnesota, which has 7,000 people in it. And that's small, right? That's smaller than Rock Falls. That's smaller than Sterling. That's small. And with the housing market the way it is, that makes it complicated, right? Because a small community has fewer houses for sale. But we reached out to a realtor and we said, hey, this is the town we want to live in. Can you find us a home? And we kind of want it to be like this. And so she started sending us listings. And by the time I put the heart shape next to it, which means I liked that one, it would say pending or sold almost instantly. So we kept trying, kept trying. Finally, we found a house that wasn't pending and it wasn't sold. And she said, well, here's the problem. Someone actually put in for 5,000 more than what it was worth, or sorry, 50,000 more. So that priced us out of the market completely. 
And we came back, and we were thinking, we're going to be in our car, right? We're not going to have, have a home. But that's when God showed up. We got a phone call from the church where I'm going to be serving, and he said, you're not going to believe this, but we got a connection card that just came in, and, and someone let us know they're going to move to Maui for two to three years, and they were looking for a pastor to live in their home for rent for less than market value. So I called this person on the phone, and he, of course, was very excited about his house, let me know how nice it was, and I just kind of stopped him in his tracks. I said, look, I'm sure your house is beautiful, but you've got to know something about my family dynamics. I have three little kids, and when I mean little, I mean little, right? That time when they're, they're just trying to destroy everything. Zero, three, and four. Are you sure that you want this family in your home? He said, doesn't bother me. I said, well, let me do you one better. I've got three little dogs that are coming with. Are you sure you want to do this? Because you should say no. If it was me, I would say no to three little kids and three dogs. His response was, it's all God's stuff anyhow. So then I asked the last question. I said, where is this house located? His response, Zimmerman, Minnesota. For Ashley and I, that was a huge God moment. A God moment where God was saying to us, I've got you, and the direction you're going is exactly where I want you to go. And that let me know that he had my family in the palm of his hands. That means that he had my church family here, New Life Lutheran, in the palm of his hands as well. You see, I believe that every one of you has had a God moment somewhere in your journey. But there was a problem. You've gotten so far from it that doubt has crept in. And that's why I think it's so important when we have these God moments that we write them down, record them somewhere. Because when doubts creep in, we need to go back to that journal or that audio recording and say, okay, God, what actually happened? And hear it right from that moment when we're experiencing God. In fact, that's why I believe the Bible is so powerful, not just because it tells the story from front to back of God and his interaction with mankind and his, his plan for salvation and all of his promises. I believe it's even more powerful because these disciples who were filled with doubt and then had Jesus show up in front of them, pen down their God moments for us. Call them the Gospels. The stories of Jesus Christ, his teachings, his miracles, so they could refer back to them just like we refer back to them. And they could remember this unbelievable story was actually true. Well, Jesus continues. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. After once again driving out their doubt and letting them know exactly who he says he is, he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go and make disciples. Which for these 11 men, when they heard this, it would bring them back to this very important moment in their life when Jesus showed up at their workplace in their hometown. And he offered them an invitation. He said, come follow me. Come be my disciples. Now this invitation did not come with stipulations. It wasn't come be my disciple if you look this way or dress this way or if you have this degree or if you behave this way. 
or if you believe this way or think this way. There's no stipulations at this point in time. That will all come later. The initial invitation is just come and experience Jesus, which is why I believe the most powerful tool that you have in your arsenal for sharing your faith is simply this invitation. Come sit with me. Come sit with me on a Sunday morning. Come sit with me in a life group. Come sit with me at this conference, right? Just, just come sit with me and experience Jesus. He'll take care of the rest, but you just, just come and experience Jesus, his teaching, his love, his truth, right? Just come experience it. That's the initial invitation. The invitation that these disciples were brought into, which leads us to this. Jesus goes on and says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You see, once we've experienced Christ's love and his truth, we want to be a part of that. And so God gives us this amazing gift that we call holy baptism, which is a reminder, a physical reminder, a promise from God with water to tell us who we are and whose we are in Christ Jesus. A gift so we will always have something to cling on to. Right? We have the pictures, we have the certificates, we have the candle, we have that, that tiny little handkerchief that we wipe the water off with. We have all these things to remind us that we are a part of God's family. What a wonderful gift. Which leads us to what he says next. He goes on to say, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Now, if you've been here for a baptism with me, I stand right over there. I, I've got the parents of the person being baptized, whatever the situation. And I typically say the same thing. I say, holy baptism is a gift. It's a physical reminder of God and his working in your life to tell you who you are and whose you are. And then I go on to say this. But even though this is an important moment, it is not the only moment. It is one moment. It's an important step, but it's not every step on your spiritual journey. This is an invitation into a life that's so much bigger. A life where Jesus wants to show you the path to walk in life. Because after all, if you predict your own death and resurrection and pull it off, we should just listen to whatever you have to say because that's what Jesus did. And Jesus wants a better life for you. He has a life planned out for you that's far better than you could imagine. And so when you run into scripture that seems so inconvenient or not popular, remember who it's coming from. It's coming from the one who brought himself back to life. It comes from God, the good, good father who wants the best for you. And just like any good father in your life, those rules are not to rule over you or to exert authority. They are to give you hope and a future. And we're promising God's word that that's what Christ wants to offer us, a hope and a future. Here's where Jesus ends. He says, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. As Jesus closes, he speaks into their biggest fear and their biggest concern. What are we going to do without Jesus? And I believe when he says these words, I, I don't know, it's not recorded in scripture, but in my mind it looks like this. As Jesus ascends into heaven, he kind of shouts this down. Don't worry, I'm with you forever to the end of the age. And they're thinking, you're leaving us. We're in big, big trouble. We don't know how to do this. But we're told in Scripture what about Jesus, that he lives 
and followers of Christ and Christians, he lives within us. But for these disciples, and truly for us too, the teachings also live through us. Because what did Christ do for three years? He mentored these men. He invited them into that relationship. He showed them how to do ministry. He taught them as he taught the people. And he prepared them for this moment. And he handed them the keys. He said, go. Go and spread the word. And they did. They did. The church expanded. It's unbelievable. The church expanded to the whole world all the way to Sterling, to this great congregation, this great group of people. Who could imagine a, a group of, of ragtag fishermen, a tax collector, outcasts that would impact the whole world, including a state that didn't exist yet, a community that didn't exist yet, and a bunch of people that did not exist yet. In the same way, Christ wants to work through us. These were Christ's last words to his disciples. The words that he wanted etched into their mind, which leads us to my last words here at New Life. Words that I also want etched into your minds. Our deathbed, our holy moment. Our, our moment where we do two things. We tell stories and we give our last advice. Now, I would love to do that first one, but we don't have time this morning because we're talking weeks of conversations and stories about every interaction I've had with you, the things we've done, the times we've shared meals or just had fun or played softball together or volleyball together, or we sat maybe with you when you had a, a dying loved one. Right, there's so many stories of transformation that I could share with you this morning, but we just don't have time, and, and maybe we'll have time some other day, or maybe in eternity we'll, we'll share what God has done when he unveils the whole plan to us. So I'm just going to skip right to the advice. And my advice is not really my advice. It's Christ's advice, which I've always tried to do here. Is It's not my words. It's Christ's words that I want to make the most important thing. And as we look into the book of Luke and Matthew, the last words that Jesus shared, there's really two things that Christ did. Right? He wanted these disciples to do two things. Believe and follow. Very simple. Hard to do very simple to remember. Believe and follow. Believe Christ is who he said he was, that he was the one born a virgin, lived a perfect life, did ministry for three years, taught stories that people still tell today, did miracles that baffled even the most hardened skeptics, falsely accused, tried, put on a cross, died, for you and for me, raised himself from the dead, ascended to heaven, and he will return. Believe in who Jesus Christ is and believe in what he has done. Believe in what he did in the disciples' life during his earthly ministry. Believe in what he's done in your life in those God moments that hopefully came to your mind as I was talking about those things. And believe in what he will do in your life. And the second thing is follow. In light of who Jesus Christ is, the one who overcame death in the grave, do what he says. Right? Because after all, he is the king. So we kneel before him and say, not my will be done, but God, your will be done. It might not be popular. It might not be what I want it to do. It might not make me more friends. 
But God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow in your footsteps whatever that takes. But the good news is he's not just a king, he's a father, right? He wants the best for us and wants to give us a life that really matters, a life in partnership with him. So we're given these two words of advice by Jesus. His parting words, my parting words, believe and follow. And this is what I know. If you do those two simple things, if you believe and follow, you will end up exactly where Christ wants you to go. Let's pray.